I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True, True Crime New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us. We are so, so happy, as always, to have your ears listening to our voices. Welcome back. It's been a long week since you've last heard our voices. Yeah. That's for sure. It's for me mostly, it's been pretty rough. We've actually had to reschedule twice this recording session mm-hmm. due to several things wrong. God, in both our lives. Yeah, it's been crazy, which is why I now will pat ourselves on the back and toot our own horns, toot toot, because we will always record more than one episode and we bank them up. And thanks to our past selves and our scheduling abilities, we were able to not miss a beat as far as episodes go. So you're welcome. All episodes are out as scheduled, and uh, that's all due to our hard work. Yes. Let's just say we were supposed to record on a Friday at my apartment in Portland. That Thursday, the day before, I happened to wake up with a very bizarre rash all over my torso and my arms. I also had a very difficult time swallowing, let alone breathing. And upon further inspection of my tonsils, I noticed that one of them was about the size of a golf ball, and it was white and painful. I also had body aches and chills, and I was not doing well. So I went to the doctor, only to discover that I had scarlet fever, like a Victorian-age <laughs> child. And before you guys ask, because I asked the same thing, and every person I've told has also asked that, No, it is not something that can be eradicated. There is not a vaccine for scarlet fever, much like I and many others thought. It is just strep throat with a rash, essentially. We actually talked about it on the, I forget what episode, but we had someone email us and correct us and say, hey, in one of your episodes, you guys talked about scarlet fever and said it was eradicated. Actually, it's not. So, (laughs) But can you blame us? It sounds like something that has been eradicated for years. Right. It's like a Victorian-era illness. It's like tuberculosis or consumption or whatever. You wouldn't think that in this day and age you would be afflicted with that. Afflicted is the exactly right word. Good. That was good. So basically, yes, I did have scarlet fever, uh, which basically, like I said, is just strep throat and a rash. I had a fever of 102. I was miserable. They had to give me oral steroids, like a big old swig of it, so my throat would stop closing. <laughs> and also, it hurt for like two days to swallow. I was miserable. It was just a nightmare. And it was warm out, which, as you guys know, always good for me. I fucking hated it. So I was hot and cold and having trouble swallowing. I was just miserable. It was awful. So we had to reschedule because, you know, I was dying. So we rescheduled it for the following Thursday, Mm -hmm. which happened to, you happened to have off Katie and we were going to be fine. The episode that came out that Thursday was already recorded. We were good. And then we had to reschedule again. (laughs) So two days before the next rain date, it was that Tuesday, I had woken up and there was vomit on the carpet from my cat, Salem, which is really not abnormal. She inhales her food. She throws up sometimes. I mean, she's a cat. It's really not abnormal. Maggie does that too. What was abnormal, and I'm sure that you guys in the background of past episodes have heard Salem, she screams for food. She like scream meows. Yeah. 
she gets very ravenous for food. She thinks that she's wasting away. (laughs) So that morning when I woke up and I saw vomit on the carpet, I was like, okay, yeah, that's typical. She inhaled. What was atypical was that Salem was, one, hiding, and two, was not at all interested in food. Yeah. So I was like, okay, maybe her tummy's a little upset. And then she ran and hid in the closet and started yowling. So I was like, fuck this. Yeah. I have to work today. My patients can wait. Sorry, guys. Yeah. You're stable. My cat, my child is not. We're going to the vet. I called the vet. I explained everything. And they're like, yeah, why don't you just, like, bring her in now? I was like, okay, I'll be there. And I live seven minutes away from the vet, so I sped there, made it in four minutes. Right. They did an x-ray. They were like, yeah, something isn't right, but you have to go to the emergency vet, Mm. a town over in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to use their ultrasound machine. Oh, boy. So they were like, okay, she's going to be stable. Like, go see your patients, bang out your patient visits, and then go get her to the emergency vet before the ultrasound tech leaves. So I had to, like, speed through. I was like, okay, hi, it's Katie. I'm one of the nurses. We're going to do an assessment. Okay, bye. Great. You're fine. To the vet we go. Yeah. They did an ultrasound. She had a bowel obstruction with a foreign object, Mm -hmm. which I think was tissue paper because she likes to shred tissue paper and make a little nest so i think she ate some yeah um the vet kept her overnight for observation to see if it would move into her colon so she could poop it out they called me the next day they said it had not moved at all um they wanted to do a surgery on her luckily they didn't cut into her intestine Mm. because if they were to cut into her intestine that's a huge risk for infection it's a huge risk for part of that intestine dying off and causing a lot of issues just awful so they were able to go in surgically push the obstruction into her colon for her to then poop out right fine i took her home she's wearing a cone she's not happy about it and i am seven thousand two hundred fifty dollars in vet bills but you do what you got to do for your child and she's recovering yeah so thank god the day that she was post-op and I got to take her home from surgery was the day that I had off. Right. But it was also the day we had set to record. Yeah. So thank God for us <laughs> that we were able to, one, mutually find a day that we right. could also re-record. Which is crazy. Yeah. With our schedules. Yeah. Yeah. And two, that we did not have to make you guys go without. We wouldn't do that to you. We wouldn't want to do that to you. We understand our voices are like an addiction to you. <laughs> And if you don't listen to us, you go through withdrawals, similar symptoms to my scarlet fever. <laughs> just kidding. But we and we also just didn't want to leave you guys without an episode just on our own, like, principle. Yeah, if we could make it happen, if we could record and have everything situated and lined up, we're going to do it, of course. Yeah, naturally. So, so here we are. Here we are. It is, uh, it's been an interesting week for both of us. Between uh, sickness and cat problems, which are honestly very important. I would do the same for my cats. So it's it has been a time. But here we are. We're here for you. We're on time. We're ready. We've got a very sad case for you today with so little information that it blows my mind. But we're going to give it a good old college try. Yes. And if you guys are looking at the length of this episode and you feel like it's short and you're feeling a little sad about that, the episode that we have for you next week is a huge case and it's a fat episode. So, yeah, you know, we had to do this case because it's unsolved. There really is not a whole lot of information, which makes it all the more important for us to cover it. Right. 
And it's all about balance. We can't give you guys huge cases every week. That's not what we do. Stop complaining about it. We're trying our best. (laughs) Just kidding. We know you guys are grateful and we are grateful for you as well. We are also grateful to Unsolved RI, Unsolved Rhode Island, who we have mentioned many a time in the past. We had the honor of covering an episode about the founder of Unsolved RI's mom, Mm -hmm. Lori Lee Malloy. Episode 28. Yes. And the founder of Unsolved RI, her name is Lauren. She is wonderful. She does great work. Yes. And she had actually tagged us in an Instagram post about the case we have today and brought it to our attention. So thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren. And without further ado, today we will be covering the the murder murder of of Michelle Norris. All right, Katie, what do you have for sources for me today? I have thecriminaljournal.com, rimonthly.com, wpri.com, which is a must when we are in Rhode Island. Absolutely. Uncovered.com, turntoten.com, the Sun Chronicle, and yourtango.com. I really dug for information. Me too. I can't even tell you how many times and how many ways I searched for this case. Michelle Norris, Michelle Norris, Rhode Island, Michelle Norris dead, missing girl in Rhode Island, uh, 1988, Michelle Norris murdered, found. I just, every words I could find, Mm -hmm. I just used it. That being said, my sources are as follows. NBC News, the Criminal Journal as well. I also had the Providence Journal, a thread from Web Sleuths. I also used Nortango, an article by Samantha Mafucci. I used WPRI and also the saving grace of this episode, the Boston Globe, which had so much information behind a paywall that for some reason glitched on my work computer and I was able to access for free. Hell yes. And that is the truth. And I'm standing by it. I stole from the Boston Globe. I don't care. (laughs) Listen, fuck having a paywall for information that should be free. 100%. And accessible to everyone. 100%. This is news about a murdered little girl whose case is still considered cold. Right. Like you would think that you would want that information available to the public who do not have to subscribe to an account. Right. Rude. Very rude. (laughs) Precisely, Katie. I couldn't have said it better myself. Let us start off with the basic background information of what little information I can give you about Michelle Norris and her family and her life. May 26, 1988. It was a typical warm day in Central Falls, Rhode Island. At this time, seven-year-old Michelle Norris was living with her mom, her grandmother, and her brothers, Billy and Nathan, on Kendall Street. Her parents, Julie, who was 32, and William, 26 at the time, had just recently separated, and thus Julie found herself living with her mother and her kids. It's also of note that at this time, Julie had a nasty kidney infection and was pretty much bedridden with the pain and the suffering that she was going through, because that is not fun. Mm -mm. According to the Boston Globe, Michelle's short life had so far been met with a stressful household, as her father was an alcoholic and her parents often spent time arguing. It was even rumored that William, her dad, was abusive. This stood also for her mother, but also perhaps hinted at Michelle herself being abused. It's kind of hard to tell. Again, there's not a whole bunch of information, but what we do know is that it was a toxic household, that William was an alcoholic, that her mother was 
chronically ill and that there was possibly abuse going on, whether it be physical, verbal, sexual, and whether it involved Michelle isn't 100% clear. And of course, it also appeared that the household wasn't always like in tip-top shape that you might hope. Like I said, Michelle's mother was chronically ill, and so that made it hard for the children because they were often dirty and hungry and scavenging for food whenever Julie, her mom, could make it to the grocery store, you know, sometimes it would go a long time in between and they wouldn't have a lot of food. And so they would be hungry and, you know, they'd go to school and they'd be dirty and it just seemed like they were just poor. And, you know, that happens and that's not anyone's fault, but it seemed like they were on tough time at this point in when Memorial Day rolled around in 1988. Michelle was also a first grader at Captain G. Harold Hunt Elementary School in Central Falls, Rhode Island. She was headed out the door to play with her brothers and her cousins at the elementary school playground. And before she left, sweet little Michelle went in to check on her mom. So cute. She asked her if she wanted Tylenol before she left. Such a sweet gesture. What a good little kid. And that tells me, too, that this seven-year-old has probably had to grow up a little faster than maybe a normal seven-year-old would, how she's assuming responsibility for her mom when her mom is not feeling well. Right. She has two little brothers. She's the oldest of her siblings. So that tells me that she has had to be a little more grown up than seven. Right. Which, and if you guys think of it, seven is so young. It's a baby. And she had also turned seven the week before. So she was like freshly seven. She's a little girl. And she's over here trying to care for her mom. So sweet. She offered Julia Tylenol, and Julia said, no, thank you. And they both said, I love you. Julia stated, she gave me a kiss. She said she loved me, and I never saw her again. Michelle went on her way to the park behind the elementary school on Kendall Street. The park was in view of Michelle's grandmother's house. Michelle's grandmother could stand in the kitchen window and look out and see the playground. So everybody felt pretty safe for Michelle and the other kids to be there, even head there alone because it's so close to home. They go there all the time. It's behind the school. It's in view of the grandmother's house. And it's also the 80s. I was just about to say it's 1988. There's no other way you would go to the park Mm -hmm. unless it was by yourself as a toddler. You know, like, that's just how you did it, still, in the late 80s. Totally checks out. What happens next is unclear. One minute, Michelle is literally running around with her brothers, her cousins, playing at this playground behind this elementary school. Everything's fun. Everything's fine. And then all of a sudden, Michelle vanishes. According to her mom, Julie, she says, quote, it was like the ground just swallowed her up. Which... That imagery, it just makes my heart so heavy. Later, the children that were playing with Michelle, including her brothers and her cousins, claimed that the older kids went to buy candy while Michelle stayed with the two younger kids. And when they got back, Michelle was gone. I saw this reported at least one article and then nowhere else. And so it's almost like it's hard to corroborate that specifically. One issue I have with that story maybe is... Why wouldn't the little kids say anything? I don't know. It just seems bizarre. I don't think that they were so young that they couldn't talk or remember. So that's a little weird to me. But that is one of the versions of the story. The other versions are even more unclear. Mm -hmm. 
The other kids at the park were also questioned by police, but they said they didn't see anything. They didn't really notice anything suspicious. She genuinely was there with them playing one minute and she was gone the next. Right. They didn't see her walk away. They didn't see her get into a car. They didn't see a strange man come grab her or anything, force her against her will, take her. Right. She genuinely vanished. Right. According to her mom, Michelle was shy and quiet, very reserved, and she is even quoted as saying, quote, she wouldn't just go with a stranger without a fight, which would honestly, I mean, the other kids didn't see anything. They didn't hear any screams. They didn't notice a struggle. So that kind of leads her mom and police to believe that maybe Michelle went with someone she knew. Mm -hmm. Her mom theorizes that Whoever took Michelle did have to know her, or at least know her a little bit for her to be comfortable to leave with someone without putting up a fight that would be noticed by other people. Detective Jeff Araujo, who works for the Central Falls Police Department, and as recently as I could tell is 2019, says he believes, too, that Michelle knew her abductor or at least recognized them and most likely went with someone she trusted, which, of course, then would mean maybe she felt comfortable enough and didn't put up a fight or mm -hmm. scream on May 30th, 1988, Michelle's small body was found naked and badly beaten less than a half mile from where she was last seen and just 1,200 feet from the elementary school. How awful. She was left on top of a debris-covered hill in a wooded area, and volunteers that were helping to search her found her body. Oh. The area was kind of swampy, and it was almost like a jumping ground. There were old tires trash debris everywhere and it really feels like she was just discarded there just like another piece of trash mm -hmm. the clothing she was last seen in a pink t-shirt and purple shorts were neatly folded next to her body which i think is sinister yeah Autopsy conducted by Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Kristen Sweeney determined that Michelle was beaten, sexually assaulted, brutally sexually assaulted, and then suffocated. Her face had also been shoved into the dirt, and this is how she actually suffocated, was inhaling the dirt. Right. It was also determined that she was murdered on the same day she went missing. She had cuts and bruises on her body that were determined to be a result of a struggle. Mm. Because even though she was a tiny little seven-year-old, she tried her absolute best to fight off her attacker. Yeah. Unfortunately, Michelle's case went cold, and it's remained cold for over 35 years now. In 2019, deeper investigative practices were being sought out in order to find literally any kind of answer. And there has really only been one true prominent suspect in her death. And even then, he hasn't been named an official suspect. You'll never guess. Her father, William. According to the aforementioned Jeffrey Araujo, the detective on the Central Falls Police Department, who was not on the police department at the time of her murder, she, he was a child, I believe, Michelle had inhaled dirt as she was suffocated. Like you said, Katie, that seemed to be her cause of death. Apparently, they did test the soil in her system when she initially died and the autopsy was done. It was tested against the soil of the swampy marsh that she was found in. And apparently, those two soils didn't match. So now, this information brings to light a very interesting question. Did Michelle die where she was found? 
Upon continued analysis of the dirt in Michelle's system, like in her mouth, in her lungs, investigators found that it was made up of fiberglass and, quote, wool insulation type material, which kind of immediately was like, that's not what you find in a bog. That's what you find in a building, maybe? During the time of her murder, her father, William, lived right down the street. He had been staying at his mom's house since he had separated from Michelle's mom, Julie, as we talked about at the top of the show. In 2019, investigators went back to that apartment where William had lived with his mom and collected soil and dirt samples from the basement in literally any attempt to match any of it, even like a speck with the dirt that was found on Michelle, in Michelle. And nothing so far that I can tell has really come from that. I don't know if you saw anything about the soil. No, No, I have not. No. Regardless of the location of her murder, the differences in soil did, in fact, prove that she was not killed where she was found, Mm -hmm. which now, of course, is like, okay, so who killed her and where? There's so many questions. Right. And it seems like everything happened very close together because if she was last seen at the playground behind the school and then her body was found up on that hill, what, 1,200 feet from the school? Right. Everything seems to have happened very locally yes in between those two spaces maybe Mm -hmm. which is interesting that no one saw anything because it's not very far from each other six months after her murder michelle's dad william got out of dodge and moved far away from rhode island huh a theory that rose for investigators was related to an incident right before michelle's death like i'm talking like the day before she went missing Shortly before the tragedy, a tip was placed to Child Protective Services regarding possible neglect in the Norris household. The day before she went missing, Michelle and her brothers were officially removed from their mother's custody and placed in the direct care of their grandma, who they were all living with at the time. So it seems like they were all living at the same house anyway, but now her mom, they cited her chronic illness as a way to make this case work because she just was always so sick that she couldn't provide food or Mm -hmm. clean clothes, you know, kind of like what I said earlier, which is really sad. On that day that Michelle went missing, and like you said, Kitty, you could see the park from her back window. On that day, once Michelle's grandmother noticed that Michelle was missing, and it was that same night, the family started searching for her. This, of course, started off kind of casually asking people, asking around the neighborhood, did you see Michelle? Did you see these kids? Asking, like, the boys who were with her. And this also included asking her dad if he had seen her. Initially, her dad was like, no, I didn't see her. And according to Michelle's uncle, who was the one who asked her dad if she had been seen by her dad that afternoon, William didn't even really seem interested at all about the whereabouts of his daughter. Like, he literally did not care. Which blows my mind. Wouldn't you fake it even a little if it was you? Right. Duh. Once Michelle's body was found, however, William changed his story. Now William was telling police that he last saw Michelle at the very same playground she was last seen at. Okay. Maybe he's telling police that because now he knows that's true from the paper. Or the news. So that's where he's trying to, you know... Later, William added to his story, claiming that he took Michelle herself to the store to buy some candy and some gum before returning her to the park and leaving. Not that the kids went to the store, leaving Michelle and the two littler kids, but rather that Dada 
took her to the store to buy gum or whatever, and then brought her back all in about 20 minutes, he said. If this is true, then the fact remains. None of the kids or anyone else nearby the park saw William return with Michelle to the park. And I should also note, Michelle was with her two brothers. Her brothers didn't say anything about seeing their dad. Interesting. There was still no traction on Michelle's case when, in 1999, her dad was held in custody for owing over $60,000 in child support. Which, he doesn't seem like a great man. So it doesn't surprise me. Wow. And that's a shit ton of money back then, too. Mm Mm-hmm. To have accumulated that f- over however many years mm-hmm. into 1999. Wow. At this time when he was held in custody, he was questioned about the murder of Michelle again. You'll never believe this, guys, but his story changed again. And now this is 11 years later after she was murdered. William claims that his seven-year-old daughter begged her dada to stay at his apartment down the road where he was living with his mom. William claims he picked her up and was going to take her there, have her stay over, but then he changed his mind halfway through, guys. He did. He did. He said he remembered about the Child Protective Services case that was going on with his estranged wife and her mom, and so he was like, no, I'm not getting my hands in this. He turned around and brought her back to where she was staying with her maternal grandmother. So now his story doesn't even put her at the park. Doesn't even put... It's just so random. Nothing more happened with William Norris, let alone Michelle's case, until 2011, when, surprise, he was questioned again. I'm not really sure why or for what reason, but something prompted them, and mm-hmm. he was he was talked to again. It was here, in 2011, over 20 years after his daughter's death, that William admitted that he started, quote, touching Michelle at the age of five, roughly two years before her death. That's incriminating as fuck. Absolutely, given the fact that she was brutally sexually assaulted as well as murdered. And they used the word brutally. Mm. hmm The two detectives who interviewed him this time, the aforementioned Jeffrey Rajo, who was, this was, you know, as recently as 2019, and a detective, Craig Vanes, claimed that during the entire interview, William never really flat out said he didn't murder his own daughter. Instead, he kind of just kept repeating over and over and over again, I don't remember. I don't remember. I was too drunk. I don't remember. More recently, in 2019 or so, William Norris spoke to reporters and told them that he knew he was a suspect in the murder of his daughter, and he challenged the police to bring him in. He then mentioned once more that he was pretty drunk at the time of her murder, and when he picked her up to bring her candy, which was later one of his versions of his story, his memory was kind of fuzzy about the whole thing. And he made sure to tell the reporters he did not ever molest his daughter, ever, 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 even though not too long before that, in 2011, he did say that he started touching her at five years old. So, um, what? There's so many questions I have for this man. So many. And if you look at his picture, oh my god. I don't think Q-tip is the right word, but more like like if a dust bunny was a person. (laughs) That's what he looks like. But if the dust bunny also smoked cigarettes for 50 years. He looks evil. He is foul. Mm -hmm. Foul. And even if he did not murder his daughter, which... Uh, well, 
he admitted to molesting her, but then he didn't. But then he was like, oh, just kidding. That was a, di- a different five-year-old? Like, yeah, right. sir? <sighs> and then, of course, you know, he had two sons, at least, mm-hmm. with in Michelle's life, his her little brothers. I don't believe there was any reports of him sexually assaulting them, which is interesting. You know, maybe shows like, oh, was he only mis- molesting Michelle? Was he only molesting her and not her brothers? What right. is going on? Detective Jeffrey Rajo still goes to the site where Michelle was found at least a few times a week. And he said this motivates him to keep working on her case and never give up. That's really sad. And for a detective, too, for a detective to have that level of dedication, Mm -hmm. that level of drive and work ethic to solve this case, that's really impressive. It is. Like, that's who I would want working on a case of my loved one. Of course, yeah. Michelle's story has appeared on a TV show called Breaking Homicide, which was on Investigation Discovery. The first episode of the series had former Central Falls Police Sergeant Derek Lavasor, as well as forensic psychologist Chris Mohindy, who both discussed the case as well as theories about what had happened. In a comment about the perpetrator, Detective Jeffrey Araujo stated, quote, they shouldn't be comfortable because we're getting closer and closer. God, I hope they're right. Michelle has been added to the Rhode Island cold case deck of cards, and she is the queen of diamonds. Anyone with any information on the murder of Michelle Norris is asked to please call the Rhode Island State Police. Their number is 401-444-1046. You could also call the Rhode Island cold case tip line at 1-877-RI-SOLVE. And that is the tragic and so, so mysterious murder of Michelle Norris. Katie, I want to know, what do you think happened? Do you think it was her dad? I think it's her dad. There is no way. And especially with her being as shy as she was, yeah. she would not go off with just anybody. And I mean, if someone approached her that she didn't know, I feel like she would make at least a little bit of a scene. Right. And draw attention. Right. She's not so shy that she remained quiet as she was being dragged mm-hmm. or whatever. And, you know, it's interesting because there have been a few other missing or murdered little girls around the time of this yeah. incident. We actually talked about one a few episodes ago, pretty recently, Christine Cole. She was also murdered around this time. And she was like 10. She was young. And she was in the area as well. So it's very interesting as to, could it be that her dad was a serial killer? Could it be that they're all unrelated and just really, really negative, sad happenstance? Who knows? I don't think Michelle was killed by a stranger. Agreed. For all the reasons that they listed. You know, she's so shy. Nothing. There was no noise. There was no fight. There was no struggle. I don't know. I I think it might be possible that she was just murdered by her dad. Absolutely. And I mean, she was walking to the park alone. Mm-hmm. So it very well could be that her dad met up with her and was like, hey, I know you're going to the park, whatever. Meet me here in five minutes. Right. Or meet me here in 10 minutes. Right. So that it's possible that he wouldn't even have had to be in the line of sight of the other kids, knowing that she was going there to be with other children and play with them. Right. And I'm also very disturbed by the fact that he admitted to molesting her since she was five. Yeah. I'm wondering if maybe he was molesting her and she was making a comment like, I'm going to tell mommy. Right. 
I don't like this. Don't right. do that. And so I'm wondering if he killed her because he was worried that she would tell on him. I think that's a fair guess. I also think, you know, his story about how Michelle begged him to stay at his place mm-hmm. with his mom. And he was like, no, there's this, you know, child protective services investigation going on. I don't want to get in the middle of that. Why did he suddenly have a conscience then? 100%. Like, he was never a good guy before then, too. He was an alcoholic, he was abusive, and potentially molesting his young daughter. Mm-hmm. Why would all of a sudden he be like, sorry, sorry, girly, I can't bring you over to my house? Right, there's a court order. Yeah. Okay, I'm pretty sure the court wouldn't be a big fan of you molesting your five-year-old daughter, but all of a sudden you care about this mysterious court order when you're talking to police. Right. So I think it's pretty cut and dry. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't even know if this William Norris, if he's even alive still. Right. Last I knew, he was, like, living around Florida and that he had maybe been connected to, I can't remember if it was, like, some rapes or deaths of young girls again. Wow. Like, in his neighborhood or whatever. They were looking into him for that. But he's, as far as 2019 goes, he was still alive and free. So. What a piece of shit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Guys, I want to know what you think about this case. Do you think Michelle was murdered by her dad? Or was it a random act of just violence? You can send us your thoughts on Twitter and Instagram at truecrimeany. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email at truecrimeany at gmail.com. We, of course, have a website, truecrimene.com. You could go to our contact page and use our handy-dandy submission tool. You can be anonymous if you so choose. Leave your name if you like. And if you want to share your thoughts with us on this case, other cases we have covered, case suggestions based in New England, please. If you leave your name and a case and we end up covering that case on an episode, you'll get a little shout-out. Yeah. And if you keep on scrolling down past that handy-dandy submission tool, you will find a little box that says thank you, which will lead you right to our Buy as a Coffee, which you can purchase as Katie, specifically a coffee, or me, a not-coffee-related beverage, such as, I don't know, a Dunkin' Donuts refresher with <laughs> lemonade. That's my go-to lately. So even if you don't have the time, don't have the money to donate or to give us coffee, essentially. We are so grateful for listening to our podcast. And we are so, to us, you listening to our podcast is buying us a coffee already. Oh, that's like buying us 100 coffees. You guys just being here with us through our podcasting journey and bringing these stories out there, especially stories like this, Mm. where there's not a ton of information. It's still unsolved, technically. And it's just a very sad, tragic case that deserves a lot more attention. So you guys just being here for us and with us means a lot. Absolutely. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.